0: Welcome to 1867 and all that. Episode 19, Tribune of the People. Colonel John Winslow looked out over the lines of Acadian men in the churchyard and sighed. Winslow didn't take any joy in what he was about to do but he would do it regardless. The year was 1755, and Winslow had been sent to Acadia, this region of French settlement around the Bay of Fundy, which had come under British control. No one was happy with the situation. The Acadian settlers in the area largely wanted to be left alone to till their fertile farms as they had done for generations but they lived in a borderland zone between empires, and that was not to be their fate. Close by, French soldiers faced off against British soldiers in opposing borderland forts. The French had established a mighty naval base on what we now call Cape Breton Island at Louisbourg. The British had themselves decided in 1749 to establish their own major naval base on a wonderful natural deep-sea harbour at a place they called Halifax. The local indigenous peoples, the Mi'kmaq especially, more closely allied to the Acadians tried to repulse the British and a brutal war of retaliation broke out. And then in 1755 as tensions mounted between the opposing sides, Winslow was sent amongst the Acadians to solve what the British saw as their Acadian problem. That is, the existence of this large group of French Catholics who lived nominally under British control but whom the British did not trust. The solution was simple and brutal. Get rid of the people. In this case, that meant uprooting the whole Acadian population and shipping them off to other parts of the British colonies further south away from the conflict zone. And so, Colonel Winslow had ordered that the men of the community gather in the churchyard, though the Acadians didn't know what to expect exactly. In the harbor, a ship waited. Winslow ordered that several groups of men march toward the ship, but perhaps unsurprisingly, the Acadians were reluctant. They hesitated, they complained. But they were, after all, surrounded by armed soldiers. Winslow himself approached one young man who complained louder than the rest. He grabbed him firmly and ordered him to march. And then the others followed. Hundreds of men boarded the ship. That would be temporarily their prison. Other ships came to carry out the same task. While the men sat in the harbour, the women were left to tend to the farms. It was harvest season and the prisoners needed to be fed, at least until they all left. The women and children would go too but after the work was done by december of 1755 thousands of acadians had been boarded onto ships and sent south away from nova scotia winslow's troops set fire to the settlement burning the homes and the fields there would be nothing left to come back to this was the start of war between empires the seven years war and this time it had started in the colonies. For the next seven years, the British and French empires would face off against each other and in league with other European powers in a world-spanning conflict. The consequences for North America would be profound. At the end, in 1763, Britain had conquered New France. The treaty ending the conflict left France with only two small islands, St-Pierre and Miquelon, a base from which to continue to fish in the abundant waters of North Atlantic. But New France was gone. A new day dawned for Nova Scotia and the region that would become the Maritimes of Canada. The conflict had been brutal. Some Acadians had hidden and escaped. They would sequester themselves away from the British until it was safe to return. Other exiles would make their way to Louisiana, another outpost of French settlement in the Americas. But the world of the Acadians would never be the same again. Okay, we are changing gears this week and moving to a whole new colony. Until this point, we've been centred on the Canadas, on what we now think of as Central Canada. But the Canadas were not, of course, the only region of British North America, despite what everyone in Ontario seems to think, and I say this, of course, as someone from Ontario. And if we are going to follow up on the story of responsible government any further, we need to go back a bit in time and catch up on one other colony in particular, the colony Of Nova Scotia. So that is our focus today. Nova Scotia and the Maritime Colonies. What were they? What was their history? And how the heck did it come to be associated with the very similar struggles in the Canada's for responsible government? We started with the Acadians but we'll move on to some other bits of deeper background context and soon move forward to the fight for reform and to one man in particular, the jovial, well-read, passionate man of the people, Joseph Howe. I think you're going to like Joseph Howe. It's absolutely hard not to. The more I read about Howe and the more I read his own words, the more I think he is, well, I was going to say a hidden gem of Canadian history, but that wouldn't be right. He's certainly not hidden. Maybe it's better to say unappreciated gem of Canadian history, especially to those outside Nova Scotia. But first, what about this maritime colony? The fall of New France was a new dawn for Britain's northern maritime colony of Nova Scotia. At the time, Nova Scotia included all of what is now mainland Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, and Prince Edward Island. Now, as a side note, I'll just say that we won't deal with the whole question of Newfoundland here. In fact, the British continued to say for decades longer that Newfoundland wasn't actually a colony. One historian has said that they saw it almost like a ship continuously moored in the North Atlantic, an island masquerading as a seasonal fishery. Don't pay attention to the growing numbers of fishermen and some families who overwintered there more and more each year. They aren't really making a colony under your nose. Until, of course, they did. But the expulsion of the Acadians and the fall of New France in 1763, though, was only one of the defining moments in the history of the maritime colonies. Because, of course, following directly on this momentous event, the residents in Britain's most populous 13 colonies further south began to grow more than a little disaffected with life and especially taxation in the British Empire. There was the Stamp Act crisis in 1765, with Americans upset about taxes on printed materials, and more crises followed. By the mid-1770s, it came to all-out war, and we know how it all turned out, with an independent United States of America. The trick is that Britain did not just have 13 colonies in North America. It also had the large province of Quebec and this colony of Nova Scotia. And by this point, too, Prince Edward Island, or the little island colony of St. John as it then was, had become its own colony, too. And for different reasons, the residents of these regions opted not to join their rebellious southern compatriots. The Americans actually invaded Quebec in 1775, laying siege to Quebec City, but the British troops, with the help of some militia, drove them away in 1776. The French and Quebec were largely neutral, supporting neither the British or the Americans. In Nova Scotia, there was probably more local support for the Americans, but the colony was too new and too heavily dependent on Britain and the local British garrisons for rebellious sentiment to take hold. What this meant, in practice of course, is that the American Revolution didn't mean the end of British North America. In the aftermath of revolution, tens of thousands of Loyalists, those who had fought for or sided with Britain, fled to the United States as refugees, many coming to what was left of British North America. We already saw how these loyalists flooded into what became Upper Canada, making loyalism such an integral part of that colony's politics. In the case of the Maritimes, thousands of loyalists came there too, and just like in the Canadas, the loyalists transformed the region. At a simple geopolitical level, Britain opted to do some serious reorganizing of its colonies. The large colony of Nova Scotia would be broken up. Britain created a separate colony of New Brunswick, largely to house the Loyalists. Cape Breton Island became, for a short time, its own separate colony from Nova Scotia, though this would end in 1820. The main thing to note here is that the maritime region followed a parallel a distinct history from that of the Canada's. Dramatically shaped by the loyalist influx of refugees following the American Revolution, the Maritime colonies nonetheless were free from the bitter French-English conflict of that area. The expulsion of the Acadians had seen to that. And Although many Acadian refugees drifted back into the colonies in the following decades, they settled in more marginal areas and found themselves largely excluded from sources of political power. The Mi'kmaq and other indigenous peoples, who had been so powerful in the early days of the colony, were by the early 19th century much diminished in power, weakened by disease and earlier warfare. By the early 19th century, they no longer played as a group kind of independent rule that they once had done economically the maritime colonies looked to the ocean they depended heavily on trade with britain and other parts of the british empire especially the british west indies that is the british colonies in the caribbean nova scotia in particular which we will largely be following today was a colony of fish and ships and traders This meant that the fate of Nova Scotia was often tied up in events overseas. The outbreak of war in Europe during the French Revolution, and especially the Napoleonic Wars, dramatically affected the colony's fate. The War of 1812 with the Americans led to an economic boom as Halifax briefly became the central shipping port between the Americas and Britain. Even so, the proximity of the New England states always exerted an influence, Even in times of open conflict, smuggling continued. The ties of trade were too strong. Nova Scotia ships took British and often American goods to the British West Indies, or in other cases, Nova Scotians traded British goods to Americans. politics, Nova Scotia partly resembled what we know of the Canada's. There wasn't the same French English tension, but the constitution was quite similar. Nova Scotia had its governor and there had been since very early on an elected legislative assembly. But unlike in the Canada's, Nova Scotia had a hybrid upper chamber that served both as a legislative council and equally an executive council. The two were joined together. The council had 12 members, and by the 1830s, as we'll see, some reformers began to talk of the Council of Twelve in the same bitter tones as reformers in Upper Canada talked about the Family Compact. In Nova Scotia, too, the British attempted, wholly unsuccessfully, to create an established church, and here, too, the Church of England failed miserably. Like in the Canadas, the reality of religious diversity put the lie to aspirations of Anglican church dominance. From the outset, Nova Scotia was home to Irish Catholics who came from Newfoundland and then Highland Scots Catholics. And then there were the large numbers of New Englanders of mostly dissenting Protestant sects. Amongst the New Englanders in the region, a Baptist preacher named Henry Aline enjoyed wide success in establishing that religion. And so when colonial authorities tried to do things like insist that only Church of England ministers could perform marriages, all they ended up doing was infuriating the local population and creating political divisions. Still, the politics of the colony were not, on the whole, especially divisive compared to the candidates. The main line of division in the colony centered on who was and who was not close to power in Halifax, who did and who did not benefit from government patronage. How expensive was the government? How high were its taxes and the fees charged by its officials? These were the issues that generated resentment and critique. The Legislative Assembly enjoyed significant powers in deciding the government's spending, but the issue of patronage and fees rested as elsewhere in British North America, with the governor and the executive, with the Council of Twelve. So it is not at all surprising that by the 1830s, when reformers elsewhere were angry at exactly these issues about expensive government and cronyism and favoritism, that some reformist politicians in Nova Scotia began to talk angrily about the same topics. And this, finally, brings us to our man of the day, well, really today and the next two days, the next two episodes, Joseph Howe. Joseph Howe belongs to that group of men who came to dominate British North American politics in the 1840s. It's hard to find the right term for them. Howe's modern biographer called him a conservative reformer. You might also call Howe, in this kind of politician, a loyal reformer, a British North American, with an emphasis on both of those parts, British and North American. A lot of contemporary historians, a lot of contemporary people, have a hard time making sense of what they see as contradictions in Howe and men like him. His reformist credentials, his desire to change the system and his simultaneous appreciation for tradition, for British parliamentary democracy, his desire to be a Nova Scotian and British at the same time. But the fault doesn't lie in Howe, it lies in our own belief that these identities were contradictory. They certainly weren't to Howe. And to Howe, you could add a list of other reformers from the era, people like Robert Baldwin, of course, also, interestingly, Louis Lafontaine, And then, of course, the men who led governments in the Canadas in the 1840s, the moderate Tory William Henry Draper, or the moderate reformer Samuel Harrison. These politicians of the 1840s truly spoke for the complexity of British North American identity, men who saw themselves as the inheritors of a great tradition of political liberty, who wanted to increase those liberties for people in the colonies without breaking from the tradition, without ceasing to be British. How came by his loyalism honestly? His father was a British loyalist who had fled Boston in 1776, choosing loyalty over revolution and claiming that when he died, it would be under the British flag. Howe grew up in a literate family that benefited from government patronage. His father was a printer and deputy postmaster in Nova Scotia. Howe was for all his life a tremendous reader, ravenously consuming the poets Homer and Dante, Byron and Coleridge, and of course, for a Scot, Robbie Burns. But Howe was a wild young man, too, who enjoyed the pleasures of life, drink, and of course, the temptations of the opposite sex. Throughout his career, his opponents would claim that he had many illegitimate children, and it's certainly true that he had at least one. The child was probably born in 1824, and a few years later, when Howe eventually married, It says something about Howe, and even more so his bride, Susan Ann McNabb, that they took in the child to raise amongst their own children at a time when this would certainly have been seen as scandalous to many. The young Howe wanted to head to sea, to just go to South America. But then his sister died on a sea voyage to Peru, and his father insisted that Howe stay home. Second choice turned out to be not too bad. As a 22-year-old, he joined forces with a 19-year-old friend and bought a newspaper owned by his step-uncle. Within a year, Howe had shown promise and then moved up by taking over the editorship of the rival and much more successful paper, The Nova Scotian. And this venture into journalism was the way Howe would truly make his name. It was in editing The Nova Scotian that Howe also came to know the people of his province. Although he grew up in a middle-class household, Howe always had the common touch. He enjoyed people, all people. He loved food and conversation. He was bluff and what some might call occasionally crass. He enjoyed a dirty joke and a funny story. As editor of the paper, he started a tradition of taking what he called rambles around the province. He bought a pony and headed out in one direction, stopping in towns along the way, meeting locals, selling subscriptions to his paper, gathering stories. He would dine and drink with whomever he met and then write up his stories for his paper. He also tried to make money by publishing other books on his press and then selling them on the route too. These included An Early History of Nova Scotia by Thomas Chandler Halliburton. Halliburton was a good friend of Howe's and Canada's, or really Nova Scotia's, most successful writer of the 19th century widely read on both sides of the Atlantic and the creator of the character, Sam Slick. Howe was always out to try to make his newspaper and publishing business stick and was often in desperate need. Partly he went on his rambles to try to collect money from subscribers who hadn't paid up. But the effect of all of these rambles was to make Howe a man of the people, someone who knew his province and all of its people, sometimes literally by name. Our story, though, is mainly about politics, and this was something that increasingly came to dominate Howe's life too. When the Assembly was in session, he would spend his days sitting in the gallery, madly scribbling notes on all that was said. There was no such thing as Hansard at this time, no official recording of proceedings. Nova Scotians learned of what was said in the Assembly by reading unofficial transcripts created by journalists like Howe. It was a tough job. Howe recorded all of the goings on, then went back to his paper and prepared to set the words in type. This was on top of anything else, any kind of editorial content that he might like to write about what happened. To cover the proceedings of the assembly was an exhausting job. At first, Howe was largely supportive of the whole institution. He was always a kind of Burkean conservative, that is, someone like the great British thinker Edmund Burke, who saw value in traditional institutions whose roots were in the local culture, and insisted that change should come organically from within a society, and not be imposed by a group of radicals with wild plans for change. So Burke was the kind of reformer-conservative who supported the American Revolution because it sprung out of the just demands of those wanting a kind of British justice for people in a British colony. But he also famously argued against the French Revolution and its totalizing attempts to break with tradition and remake that society. How was that kind of half-reformer, half-conservative? By the early to mid-1830s, just at the time when reformers in upper and lower Canada were pushing for reforms to the Constitution and calling out what they saw as the abuses of their own legislative and executive councils of the Family Compact and the Chateau Clique, Howe found himself increasingly finding fault with the manner of government in Nova Scotia too. This didn't mean he went as far as Papineau and the Patriot. In fact, Howe often put himself on the record as disagreeing with those whom he saw as radical reformers. But even so, Howe saw room for improvement. Howe's life and the history of Nova Scotia was changed by a simple letter. It hadn't even been written by Howe himself. The letter was written by Howe's friend, George Thompson, but Howe agreed to publish it in the New Year's Day edition of his paper, 1835. The letter was written anonymously and signed by The People, and The People had a number of rather critical things to say about how government worked in Nova Scotia and Halifax in particular. The letter charged that magistrates and police in Halifax were essentially robbing the people. By setting exorbitant fines, by mismanaging funds, by taking more money than was necessary, the very people who were supposed to be lawfully overseeing the peace were in fact bilking the public. The January 1st letter was actually the second one from the people that Howe published in the Nova Scotian and it came in the midst of a campaign of criticism about local government in the colony. The main source of criticism in 1834 leading up to 1835 was actually the grand jury. These institutions can seem a little unclear to us now, but essentially in the 1830s, grand juries were made up of leading citizens from across the province and local areas, and they played a role both in matters of justice and governance. And in that year, the grand jury was particularly concerned about what some of its members saw as the poor administration of Howe effects. The grand jury had, in other words, gone rogue. It had established a special committee to investigate charges of mismanagement. And it was in this context that Howe published the letter by the people. The mid 1830s, hard years. Cholera devastated British North America in 1832 and again in 1834. Nova Scotia was in the midst of a bank crisis and the fact that there was only one bank in the colony, the Bank of Nova Scotia, and it was controlled by a group of merchants in Halifax didn't help. A number of the bank's representatives also sat on the council, that body at the pinnacle of political power. Government positions like magistrates or other public posts, running the poorhouse, administering lands and this kind of thing, often worked by having the officials charge fees, much of which would go to pay their own salaries. So the officials had a clear interest in increasing tolls and charging the public even more. Even where the salaries were just paid by the government, It could often seem to reformers like these positions were controlled by a narrow group of people who paid themselves large sums of money in order to enrich their friends. One of Howe's favorite tricks in his paper was to compare the extortionately high salaries in Nova Scotia with the seemingly lower salaries of similar officials in nearby American states. Bad government was expensive government. In other words, it all came down to taxes. Unfair taxes. And the control of an unrepresentative elite. It seems to always come down to this. In this instance, in early 1835, when Howe published the letter from the people, the officials being attacked were the magistrates and the police in Halifax. They would not put up with such wild accusations. They struck back, and they did so by charging Joseph Howe with libel. This time, charges of libel against a newspaper editor were a powerful method of shutting down political dissent. Remember, this is what William Lyon Mackenzie's enemies in Upper Canada had done to him. They expelled him, and then kept expelling him, from the assembly for publishing what they claimed were libelous materials in his newspaper. Libel charges were not regularly used in Nova Scotia, but all reformed newspapers lived under the possible threat of their use. The idea of a free press and public debate in colonial newspapers with harsh criticism of the government was an idea whose legitimacy was contested. And those who invoked the usefulness of libel often had their own high-minded reasons for doing so, claiming that the newspapers were spreading false information and taking partisan sides in political issues. In his newspaper articles, Howe often invoked the great tradition of the free press, but he likely did so to protect himself from attack. It was an appeal to a cultural tradition, but one which had a tenuous legal hold. The trick with the libel charge was that Howe couldn't simply claim that what he had published was true. This simply wasn't an allowable defense in criminal libel trials at this time. It all had to do instead with intent, he was accused of malicious intent, that is, that he published what he did with the intent to harm the reputation of those allegedly libeled. Actually, the exact charge has the delicious flavor of the 19th century about it. The prosecutor accused Howe of, quote, wickedly, maliciously, and seditiously contriving, devising, and intending to stir up and excite discontent and sedition among his majesty's subjects. Now, here, the defense was even shakier because the jury was supposed to read his intent from the words published themselves. In other words, Howe was going to have a tough go of it. And by Howe, I I really mean Howe. For Joseph Howe, despite having no official legal training, defended himself. Accounts differ as to why he did this, but his most recent biographer says that no other lawyer would accept the case. Howe was bound to lose, and they did not want to offend the establishment. Howe then spent about a week madly studying libel law before his case, all the while no doubt aware of the saying, he who pleads his own case has a fool for a client. When Joseph Howe, entered the courthouse in March 1835. He came into a theatre set for political drama. In front of him was the whole bench of justices, representatives of the very people he had accused of corruption. Chief Justice Howell Burton presided. In the gallery sat representatives of the big families, those who sat on the council. But all around them sat many other middle-class Haligonians who, as he looked upon them, Howe thought looked supportive. And most important of all was the jury, for this would be a trial by jury and the judge could only advise. And these were the common folk of Nova Scotia whom Howe knew so well. His fate lay in their hands. Howe had told himself that he had little hope. He was prepared, if it came to it, to accept the consequences. A fine and several months in prison. But events outside the trial gave him some hope, the grand jury that had raised all of the issues of corruption had set a committee in motion to investigate the charges. And in the weeks since, the committee had found that many of the corruption claims had merit. Even if it wasn't precisely allowed as a defense, Howe thought it could do him no harm. The attorney general himself acted for the prosecution and he simply read aloud the letter that Howe had published and then rested his case. That's how confident he was in the letter of the law concerning libel. Then Joseph Howe stood up and got to work. In all, he spoke for six hours that day, and Howe put the attack back on his accusers. Who should really be on trial, he asked. Who exactly was seditiously undermining His Majesty's government? While Howe had published the letter, he noted, quote, Some of their worships were plundering the poor, and others, by their neglect, were tacitly sanctioning petty frauds and grinding exactions. This all had to do, of course, with the claims of the everyday corruption that the letter and Howe accused the various officials of. And Howe went through these accusations in detail. There was the one magistrate who used the stable at the Bridewell, or poorhouse, as if it were his own. Then another, who was a governor at the poorhouse, regularly provided terrible supplies to the poor even as he took the wood from the poorhouse's woodhouse for his own use. Another magistrate forced the prisoners in the city jail to make shoes for his family. They were petty and small crimes, people taking advantage of their position to make their own lives easier, and all at the public expense. And to a jury composed of regular folk who paid their own way, the accusations must have burned. Who here was acting seditiously, Howe essentially asked. If His Majesty sat upon that bench, Howe suggested, pointing to the justices, he would tell them, that he who robs the subject makes war upon the king. He would tell them that they were the rebels. Now, it all made for compelling drama, and Howe was a good storyteller. Early on, the judge made a deal with the crowd, insisting that they could not clap and shout at Howe's many telling points, but he would allow them to laugh. Howe appealed to the jury as good British subjects, as inheritors of a system of political liberties passed down from generation to generation. Colonials, yes, but fully endowed with all the rights of the free-born Englishmen. Would they allow this prosecution to proceed? Would they not stand up for a free press? Will you, my countrymen, Howe asked, the descendants of these men, warmed by their blood, inheriting their language and having the principles for which they struggled, confined to your care, allow them to be violated in your hands. While I live, Howe declared, Nova Scotia will have the blessing of a free press. Howe had spoken for so long that the court had to be adjourned and meet the next morning. In the morning, the Attorney General made his closing statement, reminding the jury of the letter of the law regarding libel. The facts in this case were clear. Regardless of Howe's fine oratory, he was confident that they would do their job. Then, the judge also bluntly told the jury that in his opinion, there could be little doubt that Howe had libeled his accusers, though he did admit that the jury had the right to disagree. The jury filed out to make their decision. In less than 10 minutes, the jury returned with a verdict, not guilty. The courtroom exploded with shouts and applause. Joseph Howe would go free. What had just happened? Joseph Howe was under no doubt himself, the press of Nova Scotia is free, he declared. And this clearly was wishful thinking. In fact, it wouldn't be until 1843 that the British government would first introduce a law allowing for truth as a defense in cases of criminal libel. But something surely had changed. For those it insulted whom he had accused of corruption, the change was clear. They would definitely be at the mercy of editors of newspapers and public opinion. Six officials, including four magistrates, immediately resigned their position, saying they would not hold public office if this kind of thing would be allowed. Then, when the council and governor offered positions to others, a number of those offered the positions refused them on principle. The main change, though, came with Joseph Howe himself. Certainly, you couldn't have said Howe was unknown before this he had been growing his reputation as an editor and a writer. But after the libel trial of 1835, Joseph Howe achieved a new prominence. He was a curious figure, if a common one in this era, a conservative reformer. And he wasn't yet done with reforming Nova Scotia's political culture. Thanks for listening. We've swerved out of our usual central Canadian lane to visit the Maritimes in Nova Scotia today, and I hope you like the visit. I have to say that Joseph Howe just might be my favourite Canadian historical figure. It's hard to find someone more alive to the, to the world, to life, to all kinds of people. Howe is going to be with us for a while. He shows up again and again in Canadian history, in the story of Confederation, of course, And even in the midst of the Riel Rebellion in 1869, when he visited the colony just as the Métis were taking things into their own hands. If you like what you've been hearing, uh, why not tell a friend? Promise yourself that this week you'll tell someone. Send an email, use social media, maybe even tell someone over a Zoom call. I'd appreciate it. And, you know, maybe they would too and thanks for the reviews some of you have left on itunes and other places about the podcast it really does mean a lot to me to get uh, this nice feedback and it helps others find the podcast so if you'd like to leave a five-star review and you haven't already then please consider doing so next week we are back in nova scotia today was a bit of a hodgepodge catching up on the history of the maritimes and nova scotia in particular but next week we're back with Joseph Howe and the growth of a reform movement in Nova Scotia in the 1830s and 1840s. There are a number of parallels with the Canada's. We'll see Lord John Russell and Lord Durham, we'll get on to debates about responsible government, but we'll see how all this played out in Nova Scotia and there's even going to be an appearance from our old friend Charles Thompson, Lord Sydenham, before he fell off the horse of course. As usual 1867 and all that is created, written, and narrated by me, Christopher Dummett, and the sound engineering is by Rob Viscardis at Paradigm Productions. Thanks to the generous support of Trent Online at Trent University. Until next time, remember, there's a lot of all that to 1867 and all that.